Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, October 17th. I'm Hannah Floor. The remnants of Typhoon Bolivan will reach the Gulf of Alaska this week, bringing moderate to heavy rain and strong winds to southeast Alaska. According to meteorologist Kimberly Vaughn with the National Weather Service in Juneau, rain is expected to pick up today. We're looking for rain to continue through the week, and it'll somewhat taper off on uh, Friday. A high wind watch is in effect for communities in the southern Panhandle early in the week, including Prince of Wales Island, Ketchikan, and Metlakatla. Though the rain will be persistent this week, Vaughn says the expected rainfall amounts are pretty typical for a fall storm. It's still going to be heavy rain. We're going to continue to monitor river levels, but it's not anything that's likely to be record-breaking. But there still is the potential for minor flooding across the entire panhandle. At its peak this past weekend, Typhoon Bolivan reached wind speeds of 180 miles per hour, making it the second strongest storm of 2023 worldwide. Ocean temperatures in the western Pacific Ocean are currently warmer than normal due to a combination of a natural warming phenomenon known as El Nino and hotter temperatures linked to human-caused climate change. Warmer waters can fuel intense storms like Typhoon Bolivan, but the typhoon lost much of its power as it moved across the open ocean over the weekend. Kajikan's tribe wants to change the community's designation under federal subsistence rules to give residents more access to subsistence resources. The tribe is asking to change from urban to rural status, which would apply to all 14,000 residents in the Ketchikan Gateway Borough. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the tribe hopes that recent changes to the designation process will help it win approval. Most communities in Alaska are designated by the federal government as rural, recognizing a lifestyle that is inextricably tied to the land. But there are urban exceptions, like Anchorage, Juneau, and Ketchikan. It's a status that's overseen by the Federal Subsistence Board. The urban communities don't have a subsistence priority like the rest of the state. That means they have limited access to subsistence resources on federal lands. Tony Gallegos is with the Ketchikan Indian community. It's an unfairness to the system because we're urban. We're not considered to have access to those resources. For example, Ketchikan residents, including tribal members, can't fish for Uligan in the Eunuch River, while residents from smaller nearby communities can, even though their ancestors have been harvesting the little smelt species for thousands of years. Gallegos has been working on a proposal to change the community's status from urban to rural through the Federal Subsistence Board. The tribe wants to remove impediments from their access to traditional foods that they depend upon. And by being uh, in a community that's considered urban, nobody in the community uh, has the designation of federally recognized subsistence user. The rural-non-rural status goes back to 1980 when the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, was put into law. It designated more than 100 million acres of federal land in Alaska into parks, recreation areas, and refuges. And it was then that communities were labeled rural or urban. It's a big deal to rescind these things. Brent Vickers is an anthropologist with the Federal Office of Subsistence Management. His office will make a recommendation on the proposal next fall. He says the process to change a community's status now takes at least four years, 
much longer than it used to. That's because public input is a major part of the process. Until 2015, it was decided mostly by numbers, things like the average household income and the number of hotels and grocery stores in a community. It really didn't have opportunities for much input and was really just based on these kind of quantitative metrics. The process changed in 2015 after complaints and a review to a more comprehensive approach. Now, Vickers says the board considers more factors and relies heavily on the recommendations of the subsistence regional advisory councils. Now, the analysis will look at all sorts of things, basically painting a picture of what what these communities are like, um, what it's like to live in these communities. In Ketchikan's case, there are about 14,000 people in the borough, but it's also isolated on an island off the road system. The community has a large indigenous population. But the rural status wouldn't just affect tribal members. It would qualify all Ketchikan borough residents as subsistence users, no matter their background. Wildlife officials also would be required to prioritize their needs over commercial and sport users. Gallego says it's the third time the Ketchikan tribe has sought a change, but he hopes for a different result this time. He says both Ketchikan City and Borough have passed resolutions in support of a rural status. Right now the tribe is trying to work within the system as it's structured with the rules and regulations that are in place, trying to see if we can go ahead and break down this barrier. Since the designation process changed in 2015, the Federal Subsistence Board has only considered one proposal in Alaska. That was for the community of Moose Pass near Seward on the Kenai Peninsula. It had been considered part of the urban Seward area, but gained rural status in 2021. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Petersburg's high school wrestling team had its first meet of the season in Craig last weekend. Viking wrestlers competed against over 100 wrestlers from Prince of Wales and around Southeast. KFSK spoke with Petersburg High School wrestling coach James Valentine about the hard work the team is putting in. He says he's happy with the progress that they made while competing in Craig. We didn't have a full team, unfortunately, but we did bring a pretty solid team. We had six boys, one girl, and we went and wrestling, as many of us know, it's on the rebuild right now. So what I was most impressed with with this weekend was the amount of kids that showed up. And being in Krangklawak, which was really cool about it, they haven't had a tournament there in years. But what was awesome about it, when you go to POW, when you go to the island, you have the island show up. And they did. They show up in numbers. Metlaketla showed up and really, they have like 20 kids on the team, which is unheard of. It's been so long. Craig has like 10 to 12. Klawak has its own like five. You have Heidelberg that brought like, I think like six. You just have this huge turnout and this for the very first meet, you have over a hundred kids. Like that is awesome for me to see. So when we go there, we still don't quite have enough for a tournament style. So what we do is we do round robins. So overall, it's just getting matches in. That's all we're doing. We're just getting match after match after match because you learn the most out of doing matches. So you're just getting experience. Just getting experience. So overall, I would say Friday wasn't that great <laughs> it was like you know kind of ironing stuff out you know this is the first match of the season we were looking a little dogged and but then saturday we turned it around and then everything we've been working on the uh, for the preseason and the beginning of the season we you know really honed that in because we you know you don't learn a whole lot in the first two two weeks 
you just kind of refine, and then Saturday we definitely implemented, which is what exactly what I wanted. So I would say Saturday was awesome. It's exactly what I wanted to see. Uh, Friday, you know, <laughs> it was first matches. <laughs> so, you, so you saw, so you saw a lot of growth on Saturday. I saw a lot of growth, which is good to see in yeah. just one day. What do you mean when you say wrestling's on the rebuild? Uh, traditionally, wrestling, uh, not, not a lot of people really know it. it. You know, it's not like, unless you know the sport, it's not very spectator friendly. Um, but I, I would say that overall with social media and kind of in general, girls uh, wrestling in the U.S. is the fastest growing sport in the U.S. because girls are turning out. Right. So that means that there's more kids coming into the room, which is what we want, which in turn gives us more fans, which, you know, and then boom, 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 mm -hmm. boom. So all of Southeast kind of has new coaches within the last five years, I would say. And then they are bringing their legacy through. Mm. You know, they're starting with their, t uh, you know, Matt Rats, you know, little kids and then moving to the middle school and into the high school. And you you can now see the people that have been around for that past five years is kind of slowly bringing them up into the high school and that's where these numbers are coming in which is yeah. great this is what we want for our sport you know we want people to turn out we want people to understand the sport we want to make it spectator friendly and that's that's the goal that's the goal also mental toughness and just to clarify uh you said girls wrestling is the fastest growing sport that's fascinating and are girls are up, wrestling yeah. I, I believe you mm -hmm. <laughs> and girls girls are wrestling boys they're no Okay, they're only so, wrestling each other. Yeah, prior, I don't know when the split was, but sometime between 2010 when I graduated and now, there was enough uh, girl turnout that they just separated it completely, which I think overall it made it so that girls have an easier uh, entry. Mm -hmm. Not to say that there's some girls I know that just whoop butt. I mean, it'll kick boys' butts and practice every single day, but I think it's the... It's the initial step into the room knowing that you don't have to wrestle a boy right off the bat, mm -hmm. right? And then as soon as they get comfortable with the sport, then they're just like, yeah, well, I can beat them, you know? <laughs> and, and that's what's really cool about it is that the girls turn out and they just like, they work super hard and, and I love it and I love seeing the growth of the sport, yeah. you know, in, in, in just in general, overall. And it makes the boys tougher too. And you said... um you said that's the goal, and then you added, and mental toughness. Tell me about the, the mental toughness part. I mean, we, Petersburg has a massive alumni of wrestling uh, families here, and their kids are coming up right now, and they can all, I would say that almost every kid that's gone through wrestling says, and has gone through it like completely would say that the hard work and mental toughness that you gain from the sport just carries with you. So, like, when these kids, I mean, we have the hardest practices, hands down, in the state on any sport. I mean, nobody can deny that. I remember watching the the kids in wrestling mm -hmm. not being able to go up the stairs right. all season long yep. when I was in high school. And we're just we're just pushing you to the limit because we're the we're the only sport where I pit you against one other person. There's a there's a certain mental toughness to it where you can easily just be like, This is a really hard position. I could just give up and then it'll be easier. Well, that's not how you win matches. That's not what you should do in life. That's not what you should be doing. And so we just in, in the practice room when you're uh, and then you get to test it when you're out of the match of just like, hey, let's, you know, you, you can do this. You are a lot more confident than you think. You are you are tough. Get in there, you know, and the kids learn a lot from it. That was high school wrestling coach James Valentine talking with KFSK.
The team will compete in Juneau this coming weekend. The season lasts through the beginning of December. Regionals will be held in Juneau the first weekend of the month. Kodiak's wholesale store Cost Savers was sold last week to the native village of Afognak and the Shunak tribe. As Brian Venwell reports, it's the latest move to improve food security on the island. The deal was in the works for about two months before it was announced. The native village of Afognak is the new majority owner of the store, which will still be called Cost Savers. They've partnered with the Shunak tribe of Kodiak for the purchase. J.J. Marsh is the tribal administrator for the Shunak tribe. I just think it's a great partnership. You know, it's time for our tribes to collaborate and work together. And Candace Branson is the tribal administrator for the native village of Afognak. She says they initially wanted to buy just an empty lot near the store to expand the village's farm programs, but ended up buying the store as well. After some contemplation and looking at the financials and thinking about the impact that it would have to run our own grocery operation like that and the impact on food security that it could have and on helping our um, bottom line. Branson says for now, staff are looking at filling open positions and overall maintaining the status quo. We are looking at just stabilization for the next year and a half, two years, and then we'll start on the development. But we've got some time to build a good plan and make sure that we have everything in order before we start. Marsh says this is the Shunak tribe's latest step in diversifying its investment portfolio. We are trying to find ways to sustain our tribes in the future, especially with food security and putting our people to work also. So um, we discussed it and met and decided that our tribal council and Native Village of uh, Fognac's tribal council thought it would be a good partnership. But buying cost savers isn't the only part of a new joint business venture. The native village of Afognak co-operates Malik Farms, which is one of six tribally owned farms on the island. Branson says they hope to have locally grown produce on shelves in the next few years. We're going to keep using the system we're using for now. And as we develop comfort in managing the store and uh, are able to expand out to include our farms, the Shunak tribe also owns Kodiak Island Wild Source, a seafood processing business. Marsh says it's too early in the process to sell its products in the store, but patrons could see local seafood in freezers there in the next six months. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Benoit. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.